Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the book of Romans, Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Let's pay careful attention now as we begin in verse 18. This is the Word of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie." and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking God's help this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul reminds us, having just spoken of the righteousness of God, which He provides freely through faith in Christ, 
even taking away our sins and replacing it with the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to our account, accounting us righteous in the sight of a holy God and giving us all the rights and privileges of salvation and sonship. But Paul's just spoken of that. Now he says, having spoken of the righteousness of God, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You can see right there the contrast between God's righteousness and God's wrath. Between God's righteousness and our unrighteousness. Paul is seeking to set before us the bad news that precedes the good news. Of course, he's given us a summary of what he's going to say in the letter. He's given us a summary of his good news, his gospel. But now as he begins to unfold the body of the epistle, he begins with the bad news. Because if we don't understand our own unrighteousness, if we don't understand the wrath of God that is revealed against it, then we're not going to understand the significance or the desirableness of God's righteousness. Why do we need God's righteousness? I'm a good person. You're a good person. We're, we're all, no. Paul says, quoting in chapter 3, the psalm we just sang, Psalm 53, that there's no one righteous, not even one. No one who does good. No one who seeks after God. By nature, we're all practical atheists and even the godliest Christian on the face of the earth in the first century, arguably, the Apostle Paul, um, he says he's the chief of sinners. In fact, the more godly we become, the more we recognize and identify more and more reasons why our best works of righteousness are as filthy rags. And this is a huge theme throughout the epistle to the Romans. So, the wrath of God. We need to understand this. What is meant by the wrath of God? God's wrath is speaking of His holy, righteous, and just hatred of sin directed towards sinners. God's holy, righteous, and just hatred of sin which He directs toward sinners. And we can even add to that threefold uh, series of adjectives the adjective active. So, so this is God's righteous, uh, holy, righteous, just hatred of sin, but it's also an active hatred of sin. God does not merely have a feeling of hatred against sin, God himself actively hates sin. And we don't have time to get into the deep recesses of the doctrine of God. But God is pure act. God God is not one who just sits there with potential and sits idly by. God is pure act. God is active. Everything that He is, is active. And God's holy, righteous, just hatred of sin is active. He's a consuming fire. He doesn't just have a desire to be a consuming fire on certain occasions. He is a consuming fire 
He is holy. He is righteous. He is just. And therefore, His wrath is a necessary aspect of His being. Now, obviously, had there never been a created universe and had there never been sinful creatures, that holy, righteous, and just character of God would never have an occasion to manifest wrath and hatred of sin. Uh, Within the eternal relationship of the divine being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's no wrath because there's no sin. But God's holiness, His righteousness, His justice, these are inherent aspects of His character. And the moment there is an occasion of sin in the creature, God's wrath burns with anger. And that consuming fire of His hatred of sin is directed towards sinners. Now there are different ways and different degrees and there are different timetables of how God manifests that wrath and hatred of sin against sinners in history and in eternity. We're seeing in in Romans 1 that there's an element of this wrath that's revealed even now, present tense. It's being revealed. And it's being revealed in God's orchestrating of all the details of life on this planet. He brings His wrath to bear even in this life as a harbinger, as a foretaste for the wrath to come. I'll say something about that in just a moment. But the point here is, God's wrath is His inherent response to the sin of creatures. And that means that God's wrath, because it's really part of His being, that God's wrath is just as infinite as He is. God's wrath is just as eternal as He is. That's why hell is eternal. And God's wrath is just as unchangeable as He is. So God hates sin infinitely, boundlessly. He never hates sin more than He did the previous day um, because it's infinite, boundless, and eternal, without beginning, without end. This is just who God is, and it's unchangeable. We need to recognize this because there are people who try to set God's wrath and God's love against each other and they try to rank the attributes of the Lord as if one is more essential than the other. And certainly we can say that there's something about God's love given that from all eternity it was manifested between the three persons of the Trinity that there's something unique about God's love in that respect. Let's appreciate that. There was no wrath until God created the world. Um, but, but there's no reason to think that God's holiness, His justice, His righteousness is any less essential to His being than love. Because at the end of the day, God is a simple being. The Lord our God is one. We speak of His attributes, but ultimately He is. I am that I am. And He is all of His attributes, and that's just who He is. So we can't slice and dice and try to downplay the wrath of God. If we have a problem with the wrath of God, we have a problem with God. And if we love and worship God, we are going to, by faith, even if at times it's difficult, we are going to worship Him for His wrath as well as for His mercy and grace because it's just who He is. It's who He is. So that's the wrath of God. Secondly, let's ask another question. Is God's wrath against sin a past, present, or future reality. 
is God's wrath against sin a past, present, or future reality? Now, we can look to the past, thinking of biblical history, and we see God's curse upon mankind, upon Adam and Eve for their sin, and upon the rest of us in our father Adam that will return to the dust from which we came. And you can see that the wrath of God in that judgment. You can see the wrath of God in the flood in the days of Noah. A universal judgment that killed men, women, children, elderly. The whole human race outside of uh, the, the visible church of that day, Noah and his family. We see God's wrath against Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of the plain. Again, in terms of the, the, those particular cities, it was comprehensive. It was universal within, within those boundaries. Everyone was incinerated by the wrath of God, the fire of God from heaven. And of course, he saved Lot and his family and, and more could be said. But you see the wrath of God against sin. You see the wrath of God in the Exodus. The ten plagues against Pharaoh and Egypt and eventually uh, the slaughter of all their firstborn sons. And then, when God leads His people out through the Red Sea on dry land, He brings the waves of the Red Sea down upon Pharaoh and his host, and they're destroyed. So we see the wrath of God in the past. But it's not only in the past. We should never read the New Testament and think, well, the wrath of God is only in the Old Testament. My friends, the wrath of God is in a way alive and well in the New Testament. And you can see it in 1 Corinthians 11 when God, uh, even toward His people, as a chastisement causes people to die and get sick for uh, profaning the Lord's table. And an even greater way in terms of pure wrath against sin, against His enemies, you see the angel of the Lord striking Herod dead and, uh, in the book of Acts, and he's eaten by worms. So we see the wrath of God in the New Testament. And that's why Paul here says that the wrath of God is revealed. In Greek, it's present continuous. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. It's being revealed. It's continuously being manifested. And he begins to show the manner by which God reveals His wrath. Now in the past, uh, last week, I think it was, we said that this revealing of God's wrath is a manifestation of that wrath in order to persuade us that greater wrath is coming. So we see His wrath in history, we see hell on earth, and we recognize the reality of hell for eternity. And so, in some sense, it's God's wrath being poured out, but in another sense, it's sort of a token of God's wrath to point to the greater manifestation which is to come, and that reminds us that it's not just past and present, but it is a future reality. And that's most likely in verse 32, what Paul is saying when he says that the people that are utterly enslaved to unrighteousness in all of these horrible ways, he says, knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death. There's something on the human conscience that reminds all of us 
regardless of what extent to which we've been exposed to the Bible or not exposed to the Bible, the fact is, on our conscience, we know that sin deserves punishment. Sin deserves death. We may not have a worked-out doctrine of hell, but there's something. That's why there's a fear of death, because deep down in our consciences, there's something that warns us that it's appointed for us to die once, and after that, the judgment. And so, the wrath of God is, we could even say, primarily future. Now, God is eternal, but in our experience, it is primarily future. Just as the glories of heaven are such that eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor hath it entered into the mind or heart of man what God has prepared for those who love Him, it's beyond our comprehension, the glories and beauties and joys of heaven. In the same way, Uh, The horror of hell is beyond our comprehension. That's why Jesus in the Bible speaks more about it than anyone else because only the infinite Son of God who created hell Himself could understand what hell is like in order to describe it in, in the way that He does. Only He could fully grasp it. We can grasp parts of it, bits and pieces. Jesus understands it and of course... He endured it on the cross. He drank the cup of wrath to the dregs, every drop. So when He confronts us in His Word about the wrath to come, He has credibility. He always has credibility. He has extra credibility when He does that because He knows what He's talking about. He's actually experienced this. And in chapter 2, verse 5, you can see that Paul says that those who reject the goodness and the kindness and the patience of God which ought to lead them to repentance, he says, of of folks that won't repent, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That word revelation means to unveil, to disclose something that has been to discover it, something that's been covered, veiled, something that we, we haven't really gotten an opportunity to look upon, it becomes made known. My friends, the unknown agonies of hell are impossible for me to communicate even here, even from the Bible. On the day of wrath, we will come to some type of understanding that we've never understood in this life. And I fear that there are many, even who sit in churches, even today, there are many who will find out firsthand what hell is like. And so that's why we have this warning. That's why Paul wrote this epistle. That's why we're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning because we we, we simply can't fool around with these things. Uh, The day of wrath is coming. And... uh, So much more could be said, but that's just not where we want to spend any more time. Uh, Another question. Against which two categories of sins is God's wrath revealed? Against which two categories of sins is God's wrath revealed? And Paul gives us these two categories. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. And Right away, if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments and the teaching of our Lord Jesus on the Ten Commandments, you can see these are the two main commands. These are the two main moral principles or categories in the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments 
deal with godliness, our duties toward God, how we can manifest our love for God. And, and so you have godliness. Uh, don't have any other gods. Give God His due and don't, um, don't detract from what God deserves and, and give it out to others. Secondly, we worship God from the heart in accordance with His commandments. We don't worship idols. We don't fashion a God in our own image and worship that. Thirdly, we honor and respect God's name, His titles, His attributes, His ordinances, His word, His works. Everything associated with God in that direct sense, we want to be very careful to treat those things with respect and honor. And by the way, there are people in this world, many of us, I think probably all of us, understand how important it is to respect somebody's name. In fact, there are people even in our society that are extremely sensitive. If you use their name, or we saw this past week, if you use their wife's name, and if you speak ill or you make a joke about someone, you think of Will Smith with his wife and his violent reaction... Um, and yet, and yet, um, how many actors and actresses in Hollywood refuse to get our Savior's name out of their mouth in using it in a dishonoring way? How often is God's name taken in vain by the very people that flip out if you make a, a, a joke that uh, speaks ill of, of their wife or their relative? So um, the fact of the matter is, God says, get my name out your mouth and get my name and my son's name and my word and all of these things out of your mouth unless it's in an honoring way. Nevertheless, the fourth commandment, we love God by honoring His day, by gathering together, assembling to worship God on His holy day. Setting it apart for Him, getting rid of work and recreation as far as we can, um, and we focus on wor- the worship of God, public, private, and family worship. Godliness. So we love God. We cherish God. We respect Him. And we worship Him. That's what we're commanded to do in the first table. That's godliness. Secondly, there is righteousness. Now, of course, we can use the word righteousness in a general way to describe any of the commands of God, but typically we associate the word righteousness with the last six commandments given to Moses at Mount Sinai. So you have this idea of being equitable, giving people their due, loving your neighbor as yourself, and you see the last six commandments really focus on that, honoring authority, obeying parents, honoring father and mother, you see the sixth commandment where you have the respect for human life. Not killing, in fact, doing everything we can to protect the well-being of others. The seventh commandment, sexual purity. Respecting, not, not committing adultery with, uh, with somebody else's spouse and, and maintaining a chaste and pure thought life, words, actions, these kinds of things. Uh, the eighth commandment, Thou shalt not steal, respecting other people's property. In God's providence, He's given certain things to others. He hasn't given to me. I'm not going to reach out and take something that God hasn't given to me. And I'm going to respect 
the truth, speaking the truth in love, not bearing false witness, not exaggerating, gossiping, slandering. Uh, and then the tenth commandment, uh, my, my duty toward others to be content, to not covet and desire, again, the things that they have and even envy them and root against them, uh, you know, wanting bad things to happen to them because I'm bitter at the advantages that they have. So this is righteousness. This is the sort of thing that God commands us with respect to other human beings. So when Paul says that God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, he's really just reiterating what God revealed through Moses and what Jesus revealed when he said that the two great commandments of the law are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, elsewhere, he, he, he even elaborates that, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So, ungodliness and unrighteousness uh, really are the violation of these commands of godliness and righteousness. And it's important to see that, that the, the whole framework, the ethical framework here is you have the vertical and the horizontal. The vertical and the horizontal. Our duties toward God and our duties toward man. Well, fourthly, against which specific forms of ungodliness and unrighteousness is God's wrath revealed? Against which specific forms of ungodliness and unrighteousness is God's wrath revealed? You see, the moment you say that by breaking the sum and substance of the Ten Commandments, that you incur the wrath of God, the next question that we want to ask as sinful human beings is, well, which commandments? You see the rich young ruler. Jesus says, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Well, which ones? Or Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, the man says, who's my neighbor? See, we're always trying to reduce the requirements of God's law. So it's important to ask the question, which specific forms of not loving God the way I ought and not loving others the way I ought, which specific forms of ungodliness and unrighteousness uh, is the wrath of God revealed against? And it's very clear here that it's all of them. All of them. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And grammatically here, we can distribute that word all equally to the word unrighteousness. All ungodliness and unrighteousness. So every example, if I love the Lord by worshiping Him and keeping the Sabbath and joining the church and honoring His name and not worshiping other gods, and I live a basic Christian life, I might say, well, then I'm pretty good. The fact is, that's not the case. We sin against these commandments, the first four commandments of godliness, every single day. We do not love God with all of our heart. We don't. Otherwise, we would never sin. We would never do anything that contradicts or transgresses the law of God if we loved Him with all of our being. Only one person in this world has ever loved God in that way, and he never sinned. And he never sinned because he loved God in that way. We don't. 
Uh, and, and I'm not going to reiterate the prayer of confession that we made earlier in the prayer time, but the fact is, we find ourselves to fall woefully short of the glory of God when we examine ourselves and we see how trifling our dealings with God are, how little we pray, how little we think of the Lord. And, and that's just these duties of, of godliness, but it's, it's not just that. It's all unrighteousness. How often we lose our temper with other people. How often we have a bitter thought or an envious or covetous thought. How often we complain. Uh, we, we could stack up all the sins that we've committed past and present and we think about uh, you know, sexual sins perhaps of the past. We think of uh, things we ought to have done to help other people, but we were too selfish to do it, and we, we neglected our duty, we neglected opportunities to be a blessing to other people. And my friends, no one is righteous, no, not one. We look at these duties, godliness and righteousness, and we say we have broken them in countless ways. And you read this passage, and I mean, it's so convicting. It's so convicting that these people who all they had was the light of creation and some semblance of a knowledge of God, but they're condemned for not glorifying Him as God, nor being thankful. Verse 21, how many times have you and I who have the entire light of God's Word in the Bible been unthankful, ungrateful for the blessings we have and we manifest it by complaining about the things we don't have? and being discontented with God and seeking pleasure, lovers of pleasure, lovers of self rather than lovers of God. A similar list of sins in Second Timothy. Ah, how convicting that is. And professing ourselves to be wise, how often we think we've got all the answers. And uh, what is it? The sluggard or the fool is wiser in his own eyes than seven men put together. How convicting it is. Uh, how we, we, we think we're so smart. We think we know everything. And we exchange the glory of God for created things. And we seek the things on earth rather than the true satisfying bread from heaven, even the Lord Jesus Christ. God blessed forever. And in terms of all unrighteousness, you see the list in our chapter. Uh, verse 29, all being filled with all unrighteousness, Again, sexual sin, uh, maliciousness, envy. Okay, maybe you've never murdered somebody, but seriously, you've never been envious. God's wrath, His white hot flaming wrath, His eternal wrath of hell, of the lake of fire, is revealed against strife, fighting, quarreling with other people, backbiting. Uh, speaking behind people's back or shooting back an evil response and fighting and quarreling, uh, violence, boasting, disobeying authority, it goes on and on. Unforgiving, unmerciful, unloving. Think about that. Think about there are people that are hurting, maybe that, that we're hurting, and our heart grows cold toward them. And we just, we, we just aren't there to help them. Love our neighbor as ourselves. I don't think so. We, we fall far short of that. And you see the foolishness of the Roman Catholic teaching on this point that, 
that assuming you haven't violated the letter of the law in the Ten Commandments in terms of murder and adultery and some of these uh, more scandalous outward sins, uh, assuming you haven't done that, you don't have to worry because your sin is venial. It can be taken care of fairly easily. It's not mortal. It's not a sin unto death. Uh, And so you, you don't really have to pay as much attention to a list like this. I mean, you kind of do, but it's very easy to get it taken care of. Just go to the priest. But in terms of uh, this distinction between sins that lead to God's wrath and to death and sins that don't, it's a foolish distinction. It's a self-serving, idolatrous distinction. God says, the soul who sins shall die. The wages of sin, any sin, all unrighteousness, all ungodliness, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Fifthly, against which persons is God's wrath revealed against which persons or against whom is God's wrath revealed now we said that God's wrath is directed towards sinners in fact if we had time I could point to passages in in the scriptures which say that God is angry with the wicked every day Psalm 7 that God in fact hates the wicked he hates the wicked the violent Psalm 5 Psalm 11 Many examples in the scriptures of God abhorring and hating his enemies, those who sin against him. Um, So his wrath is directed towards sinners, but then we could say which sinners? Which sinners? Against which sinners? Well, we're told it's the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Men. And the word here in Greek is anthropos, from which we get the word anthropology. It means humanity. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity. So it's a universal term. It's not speaking of one segment of the population. It's not saying, well, it applies to people in some far-off land that are worshiping totem poles or something, but oh, I'm here in this land of America where we have, you know, God bless America. No, it applies to you, whether you're a church member, whether you're a covenant child, It doesn't matter. By nature, all of us come into this world in this predicament that God's wrath from heaven is revealed against us insofar as we are human beings. We're subject to the wrath of God against sin. And so just as the flood wiped out everybody, just as Sodom and Gomorrah wiped out everybody that was in those cities, even Lot's wife, who was halfway out of the city, but, but it was universal, it was comprehensive. And we're told here that, again, we can't, we can't remove anybody from this category by nature. We might be tempted to say, you know, there are some people that have never heard the gospel. You know, whereas someone might be tempted to say it's those people uh, Pagans out there, you know, dancing around the totem pole, it's those people that are really under the wrath of God. Somebody else might say, ah, but it's the reverse. Those people have never heard the gospel. They don't know any better. And and perhaps uh, they get a free pass because they've never seen a Bible. They've never met a missionary. They've never explicitly heard the name of Jesus Christ. And so maybe that person is not under the wrath of God that's revealed from heaven. But you see, Paul addresses this. And we'll get to it in detail in a future sermon. But 
Notice he says, verse 20, that they're without excuse. They're without excuse. Those who have known God, verse 19, that what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. He's saying every person by nature who lives in this world, God has shown them who He is. The heavens declare His glory. The firmament shows forth His handiwork. The heart and mind and design of humanity, the conscience, all of these things bear witness to His eternal power and Godhead, and therefore they are without excuse. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. So you don't have to hear the Gospel and reject it to be in this category. It's all of us by nature. And Psalm 51 says we're conceived and born in sin. So, uh, not trying to get into the whole issue of infants, but, but all infants come into this world conceived and born in sin under the wrath of God. And the infants that are saved, and we could get into that, the infants that are saved are saved. They're not exempt. They're sinners who need to be saved. And and that's a question for another time. But uh, none of you that are hearing what I'm saying intelligibly here this morning are infants. So let's focus on our own situation here and leave that for another time. But uh, it's everybody. It's humanity as a whole. Uh, Romans 5:12 and following makes that clear that in fact it's all of us that have sinned and become guilty in our father Adam. Well, sixthly, why does Paul list ungodliness before unrighteousness? Why does Paul list ungodliness before unrighteousness? Is this just random? That's just the first thing that came to his mind? No. There is a priority here, and Paul is reflecting that with great precision. Just like in the Ten Commandments, our duty toward God comes first. Just like in the two great commandments from Jesus, our duty toward God, our love for God, always comes first. There's a priority of godliness over righteousness, and therefore over the wickedness of ungodliness, uh, more so than the wickedness of unrighteousness. Well, what type of priority is this? Well, there's, a, first of all, a moral priority. There's a moral priority. Our moral obligation to love God is greater than our moral obligation to love others. Now, these things are intertwined and wrapped up together. We're not saying you can have one without the other, but there's a moral priority. We have a greater obligation to respect God's rights and to love God than we do to respect other people's rights and to love them. And the reason for that is that God is our Creator. It's a greater sin to be ungrateful toward the One who actually gave you existence, who made your body and your soul, who is the providential provider and sustainer of your oxygen in your lungs every moment of your beating heart. God gives you everything that you enjoy, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, everything in your life that you would say, this is a good thing, it is from God. He is the benevolent, almighty provider and giver of every good gift. And God is holy. Other people have sinned against you. Uh, Of course, it's a sin to not love your enemies, but the fact is, it's a greater sin to not love the God who has provided you with all these things and given you life and length of days throughout 
throughout your entire existence. So there are people in this world you have to love, but in a way it's still sin, but it's kind of understandable why it would be challenging to love them. Why would you, why would you be challenged in any way to love God? You have every reason to love Him. He's a good God. He's a gracious God. He's a fair and balanced and righteous and just and holy God who's never sinned against you once. How could you not confess, like in Psalm 92, that there is no unrighteousness in Him? We have every reason, every bit of obligation and duty of gratitude to love God and to keep His commandments. So there's a moral priority. Secondly, there's a logical priority. There's a logical priority because think about it. Why is unrighteousness sinful? Why is unrighteousness wrong? Why is it wrong for you to murder somebody in cold blood? Why is that wrong? Well, Genesis 9 tells us it's wrong because that person has been made in the image and likeness of God. It's wrong to murder someone because it attacks the image of God. So the horizontal sins against other people are sins because of the vertical relationship that we stand to God as our Creator and Lawgiver. The reason we need to love our neighbor as ourselves is because God has told us to do that because it reflects His character. And so the horizontal is grounded in the vertical. Unrighteousness is unrighteous because it's ungodly. Because it doesn't reflect the God we've been created to reflect. Because it sins against the God who commanded us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Against the Savior who said, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Unrighteousness is unrighteous because it's ungodly. That's why in Genesis 39 verse 9, when Joseph is tempted toward adultery with Potiphar's wife, he doesn't just say, here's what Potiphar did. You know, he was gracious toward me and, and exalted me in the household and trusted me. But he goes on to say, how can I do this great wickedness against God? Why does he honor the second table of the law? Why does he respect his, neighbor, his neighbor's marriage? Why does he not commit adultery? Because he loves God. He doesn't want to sin against God. Uh, and um, th- there would be no second table of the law without the first table. You take that out and you destroy the foundations of morality. So there's a logical priority. If we care about unrighteousness, we'd better care all the more about uh, ungodliness, dealing with that sin. If we care about, uh, in a positive sense, if we value righteousness, we'd better value godliness all the more because it's the foundation of righteousness. True religion is remaining unspotted from the world, but also showing love and mercy to widows and orphans. So you see both tables of the law. They're both important, but one is more foundational. Thirdly, there's a causal priority. A causal priority. There are consequences. Ungodliness leads to unrighteousness. You see that in Romans 1. Ungodliness leads to unrighteousness. It leads to unrighteousness in an organic way. In an organic way. Even apart from any judicial sentence of God or judgment of God, which we read about here, giving them over and so on. Even apart from that, there's an organic connection. Cain's relationship to God broke down 
because he wouldn't worship God by faith from the heart in a biblical way when he offered his sacrifice. And when that first table uh, ethical foundation broke down, that's when he murdered, uh, envied and murdered his brother Abel. So ungodliness leads to unrighteousness. And the Psalms that we sang emphasize this, that where does all this flood of iniquity come from? It comes from a lack of the fear of God or secret, private atheism in our hearts. And that's the whole story of Romans chapter 1. But it's not just organic, it's judicial. So God is putting us on notice in this chapter. If you think you're going to have righteousness and horizontal peace and prosperity and people respecting people and all of that, if you think you're going to have a society like that and not ground it in your respect and love and appreciation for me, um, you're barking up the wrong tree. That's not going to happen. That will never happen. God says, I will not let that happen. So there's a causal connection. Ungodliness will necessarily lead to unrighteousness. You can take that to the bank, and I don't need to tell you that because look at the history of our society. Well, what do we call man's fallen tendency to ignore, oppose, or reverse this order? What do we call it? What do we call man's tendency to look at the order? Godliness righteousness ungodliness unrighteousness what do we call it when we don't like that order when we ignore that order when we oppose or try to reverse that order in common parlance we call that humanism we call that humanism my friends the biblical definition of sin is such that actual sin is defined in relation to God alone and we're going to take this up Uh, God willing, next week we're going to develop this more. But there's a very important statement that David makes in Psalm 51. What sin did David commit? What sins did he commit in Psalm 51 that led eventually to this great outpouring of grief and of repentance and sorrow? And uh, what led to Psalm 51? David let down his nation. He sinned against his nation by not going out to war. David sinned against his neighbor's wife, sinned against his own wives, and that's a whole other story, but he, he lusted after his neighbor's wife, sinning against his own wives, sinning against his neighbor's wife, sinning against his neighbor, who was a close friend and fellow soldier of David, Uriah the Hittite, sinned against him by committing adultery with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, Sin by trying to lie about it and cover it up and, and try to, trying to make it look like the baby that was conceived in her womb was, was uh, you know, trying, just covering the whole thing up and eventually conspiring to murder Bathsheba's husband and then taking Bathsheba as his own wife. All of these things were sins against the second table of the law, sins of the highest order against other people. And... When God brought judgment, it meant that David's infant son died and various other sons of David died. And his family was miserable for many years to come because of this. So he sinned against other people in an extreme, in a heinous fashion. But he says, Psalm 51 verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned. 
That is the Holy Spirit telling us that actual sin is defined by our relationship to God. Our conduct in relation to God, His character, His commandments. That is how sin is defined. Even the greatest possible sin against other people is sin primarily and fundamentally because it is a sin against God. And when David came to true repentance, that's how he viewed it. Now, that does not mean that he ignored the victims of his sin. That does not mean that his heart did not go out to them. No doubt his cold hard-hearted attitude for those months in between was part of why he was so sorrowful and filled with grief in Psalm 51. But even his hard-heartedness and insensitivity toward the victims of his sin, even that was sin fundamentally because it was a failure to reflect the character of God. God was gracious and merciful and tender-hearted to David every day of his life. And David turns around and is cold and hard-hearted toward those that he ought to love and cherish and protect. Against you, you only, have I sinned. My friends, we need to take this to heart. We'll look at it more next week, but we need to take this to heart. We will never come to true conviction of sin until we come to conviction that it is against God. And um, just a, a parting thought where the rubber meets the road is that if we, if we imbibe humanism, we will begin to perceive our sins against others as primarily against them. What's the problem with that? Why is that so dangerous and detrimental even to your Christian life? And certainly, if you're unconverted, detrimental to any hope of repentance if you consider your sins against other people to be primarily against them. Well, let me tell you the reason that it's so detrimental is this. Very simple. That those other people have probably sinned against you. Those other people probably have many reasons where you could, you, you could, your, your fertile imagination could come up with all kinds of excuses, all kinds of mitigating factors, and at a horizontal level, it is so difficult to come to the conviction, it, perhaps well nigh impossible to come to a real substantial conviction of sin until you realize you're committing this sin against the God who's never sinned against you against the God who's given you all the joy, all the happiness you've had throughout your life. He's given you your family, whatever health you have, He's given it to you, your food, your clothing. He's protected you from far greater evils happening to you. He's put you in a country with so many benefits and advantages. My friends, until you see that it's God against whom that you've sinned, until you see that, conviction of sin is never going to rise above just a, 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 a simple regret or a sense of, oh, I really could have done it differently. No, my friends. We will never long for the righteousness of Christ. We will never rejoice in the righteousness of Christ. We will never embrace the righteousness of Christ until we say, God, have mercy on me, the sinner, and I've sinned against you. I've sinned against your patience with me, Lord. I've sinned against your goodness, your generosity. I have been unthankful. Lord, forgive me. Lord, take my sins away and give me the righteousness of God. Take away your wrath from me.
Cleanse me and make me pure and holy in Your sight. Let's pray. Gracious God, the spirit of humanism is rife in our hearts by nature. It prevents us from seeing the true nature of sin, the true nature of ungodliness and unrighteousness. We are tempted to define sin according to how it affects our human relationships, how it affects other people, rather than fundamentally saying it is against You and You only that we have sinned. We pray that You would bless this psalm as we sing it, that You would write it upon our hearts, that the words we sing would be from the heart, and that You would grant eternal life and increased blessedness to each person here. For Jesus' sake, amen.